Hey, and welcome to Global Minima. I'm Kit, the show's producer, and I'm here with Jason, our host. How are you doing today, Jason? How's your quarantine? Going a little stir crazy, but, you know, doing as well as anyone can be when stuck inside for an extended period of time. Yeah, what's it been now? I feel like our we actually started this podcast pre... Did we start it pre-coronavirus? It was pretty quick after. Yeah, we did, because remember we had Dan Kamen and he was like overseas somewhere. Yeah, I feel like that was in February. Yeah, totally. So We're actually on episode, this is episode eight. I don't, oh, wow. Should we do something for episode 10? I don't know. Like, what? Be socially distant? <laughs> yeah, let's let's schedule some social distancing. Okay, for, yeah, for let's schedule 10. some time apart for episode 10. <laughs> anyway, today we have Lindsay Baker. Uh this is a pretty good interview. It, it's a little longer than some of our other ones, but she just brings a lot of interesting stuff to the table. Why don't you give us a little background on Lindsay? Yeah, I met Lindsay years ago when um, she started working with some friends of mine um, at a little startup named Comfy that uh, is a smart buildings startup that was eventually bought by Siemens. And Lindsay has always been sharp and insightful and is a, is a good speaker and is always on the stage at conferences. So I thought she'd be a good guest. Um, and then I was listening to her podcast last week and found out that we have a uh, favorite sci-fi author in common. Mm-hmm. So we're, we'll talk a little bit of, about Kim Stanley Robinson uh, and uh, sci-fi as a policy analysis tool. Yeah, this one got a lot more uh, sort of into sci-fi than in the past. But I, I think, you know, that actually might be a good new question to introduce to our guests. Uh, who is your favorite sci-fi author? Yeah, exactly. I think it tells you a lot about somebody. I don't know. I might have to judge them on that. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's stop hobnobbing and get to the interview. So without further ado, here's Jason interviewing Lindsay Baker. Go, go, Gadget. Lindsay, thank you for joining us today on Global Minima. We, we'd like to start off by talking a little bit about how, how everyone came to be where they're at. So can, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and, and how you came to be where you are now? Yeah. Uh, so I'm an environmentalist and I work on buildings. Um, basically, I've been passionate about this stuff since I was in high school. The environment in particular, but also buildings, I decided to focus on them um, I think I was actually in an AP environmental science class, uh, and I got excited about buildings because they were very low-hanging fruit in the sort of realm of environmental issues, but also I really just like the fact that they're super human ways to interact um, as a professional. You know, you're sort of providing space for people. It's very creative, um, and I love it. I love the field. I love working in the sustainable buildings movement. I feel super fortunate to be in it. Um, I've moved all around the industry in lots of different roles. I started at the U.S. Green Building Council back when LEED was first coming out, um, LEED, the rating system for buildings. Um, And then I left to get a graduate degree at UC Berkeley, which is where we met at some point. Uh, I don't recall exactly, but I was there. It It was when you joined Comfy. Oh, was it? It wasn't at UC Berkeley at all? It was, oh, I met you at that mansion. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. 
That was a mansion. It was. It was a weird place. Um, okay. Well, then, yeah. I thought it was somewhere at UC Berkeley because we, we, we were. We might have. We might have met at Berkeley, but I feel yeah. like we really connected when uh, you got on board with. Uh, yeah. With, uh, my friend. yeah. We'll have to get we'll have to get Stephen on here at some point. Yes, that um, would be super fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, he has a totally different path from me. I was basically a hippie <laughs> from Oberlin who ended up doing a building science degree. Um, uh, but yeah, actually, between Berkeley and Comfy, I worked for Google in their real estate team doing sustainability stuff. And that was actually the first time I was introduced uh, to Andrew and Steve. And so we, we started Comfy, um, I guess that was, oh man, 2011. Um, and so that built the company for five years, smart building software company, um, which, uh, was acquired by Siemens. Um, I became, I left and became the head of sustainability for WeWork. Uh, I was there for about a year and a half and then it experienced its, it's very well-documented, uh, difficulties. And I left as a part of that. Um, so right now I hang out and read and think about what needs to happen to the movement next. And I'm working on some things, but that's just the sort of quick overview of, of me and what I've done, I guess. Yeah. You're involved with new energy nexus too, right? Yeah. I mean, in, in a sense, I mean, that, I feel like they're kind of this wonderful extended community of people who are just trying to do lots of different things to sort of affect change in the, in the realm of clean tech. But um, in particular, I'm on the board of the clean fight New York, which is a new accelerator program that they have. Um, in New York in partnership with the state of New York. Um, so yeah, I do that. And I'm on a couple of other boards that I care a lot about. And I do some consulting work. And now I'm like writing blogs and doing podcasts and stuff. So it's been busy, <laughs> despite being basically unemployed. <laughs> you're just you're just relaxing is, is what you're saying. Relaxing. Yeah. Like, got it. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like you relax like I relax. Um, so kind of just to focus a little bit about the data-driven tools uh, in the space, right? Um, and I, I have certainly seen uh, the, the data-driven tools and buildings change a lot, even in the time I've been working on, on them and you've been working on them for longer than I have. So um, how did the data-driven tools, uh, how have they changed since you started looking working in the space? And what we're really curious about is what did they look like in the beginning? Like what 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 struggles with data did you have when you started and how have they changed? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> so, so when I probably started working with data driven tools, I would say it was it was entirely Excel spreadsheets and like you know, you would sort of figure out the coolest Excel commands that you possibly could. And then people would like trade Excel command secrets and stuff. And it was because a lot of times you were taking energy data from paper bills and uh, typing it into a spreadsheet and then doing analysis with it. Um, you know, just basic stuff, like ro really basic stuff. And I mean, in the realm of sensors, for example, there, you just didn't, th things weren't connected to each other. So you kind of, you know, maybe you would have a light that had a sensor on it so that the light would turn off um, automatically, but you didn't have like that sensor data getting plugged into anything else. And so it was kind of, it was just very manual. Um, and uh, you, we don't, didn't really have many sensors to speak of, period. 
Um, so, so that, that's sort of what it looked like. I, I'm sorry to say that there's still a lot of spreadsheets being used in a lot of different, uh, corners of the world of automation. We're all sorry. Yeah. Right. It's still a thing. Um, those Excel commands are unfortunately still really useful. Uh, but at least now I think there's a couple things that have happened. One is that we have a lot of new objects, sensors in particular, um, meters, these kinds of technologies that you can deploy into buildings. And a lot of them have paid attention to the need for them to speak a common language. So you have now these the ability to get really rich data and occasionally you'll have a building that has taken the time and effort to, to put all of that data into one place so that you can do super cool things with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, honestly, I spend a lot of time just like taking stacks of energy um, bills and like trying to find if there was a peak demand number on the bill or not, you know, like that, that kind of stuff was sort of the, the basics um, getting, you know, maybe you, there was an energy star portfolio manager tool at that time. You know, like, I mean, this is not that long ago, uh, but, but ultimately like I've been doing this stuff for 20 years and the sad thing for me is that the computing world has come so much further uh, in in terms of what people, what the sort of technology side of it looks like than than the building side, um, which is you know for good reasons because buildings are really gnarly. Um, but yeah, uh, it's it, it's nice to see all the technology that's come out. But I think for a lot of people who are still in the day to day job of managing energy in buildings, they probably don't. It doesn't look as different as you might hope it would, right? Yeah, uh, and I think that a big part of that is because of the inertia of of the people, and a part of it is the inertia of the technology. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. we had we had Matt Golden on here um, from Recurve, um, and they're yeah. they're doing incredible things with data, um, but it, it's anytime you talk to him, you hear about the adoption curve. Um, so, uh, and, yeah, and I think this this relates to some of your. Uh, personal thoughts, you know, you recently wrote this blog post about opportunities to train and upskills professionals uh, in a way that enables the green transition uh, while simultaneously building equity um, because we're progressives. So first of all, I'd love to hear a little more on that. But, you know, secondly, are you aware of uh, the granular data on which skills there's need for? Um, and what does this data say? Yeah, um, so, so just to summarize the piece, I guess, for people who didn't read it, it's um, I, I, first off, I think it's just really important that we all pay more attention to the sort of the gaps in our logic or the, the gaps in our theory of change of how buildings, existing buildings are supposed to improve their performance over time. Um, you know, we, we, we've worked on certification programs. That's a thing. There's a lot of innovation, new technology out there. We're really good at sort of making an argument that it should happen for financial reasons. And we've like all those things are things we've spent time on to get better at and mm -hmm. to do and money, you know. But for me, with the comfy experience, that, that was five years of really going out and, have, you know, with a team of people trying to find uh, places to plug in a piece of smart building technology that worked and did the things, did some really cool things. And the gap that I saw was that the workforce that runs commercial buildings is basically a combination of too small and also not really skilled enough to use technology, period. It's, it's a lot of folks who learned, um, you know, non- 
automated systems. They learn manual systems. They know how to, you know, actually manage a, you know, um, operate a chiller, these kinds of things. Uh, a lot of them came from the Navy. Um, so they get a lot of hands-on training, but they don't know like how to read a kilowatt hour time series graph and analyze where the wasted energy opportunities are. That's not something that was a part of their education and it doesn't feel, you know, as natural sometimes. Um, sometimes that's because it's an aging workforce. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, sometimes it's also just, just training. Uh, so, you know, and then not to mention the ability to sort of think about layering, you know, machine learning algorithms onto how their HVAC system works. So it's right. a lot of like, there's a, there's a pretty big gap there that, that I saw and that a lot of people see, there's a lot of articles about it. A lot of people talking about the skills gap in the realm of HVAC in particular, H, uh, heating, ventilation, air conditioning. Sorry, I guess everyone listening to your podcast probably knows what HVAC stands for, but just to maybe not be an obnoxious <laughs> person that doesn't define their acronym, acronyms. So, um, there's a big skills gap in HVAC. It's an aging community. Uh, One of the, I I appreciate the idea that like, what is the granular data? One of the best statistics that I found is from an organization. I I think it's called SIBSI, that acronym. Wow. Am I going to be able to remember what it means? It's C-I-B-S-E. It's in the UK. Um, And they uh, did a, did a, uh, study, they surveyed a bunch of professionals who manage buildings, um, like engineers who manage buildings, and they found that 40% of them admit that they are unfamiliar with the term Internet of Things, and 55% agree that there is a lack of clear advice or knowledge on the subject. Uh, and in the same study, they actually uh, surveyed some sort of general real estate executives in commercial buildings. 36% ref, uh, reported a lack of technical skills for data management. Um, and that's in Europe where I think, frankly, they do a better job on a lot of this. Um, so so in particular, you know, I think there are gaps all over the place. I think the, the real gap, if I had to articulate it, is basically be- between the, the manual and the digital. Um, and so the good news is there's a ton of stuff you can learn there, right? It's like everything from literally like learning all the super cool Excel commands to um, just, you know, to understanding what an API is or something like that, um, which kind of frankly feels more advanced to me, but maybe that's just because I learned it later. Um, So yeah, there's a ton, there's a ton of stuff that people need to learn. Um, It's, it's not the best documented in terms of like, you know, the actual individuals working in buildings, what do they know? What do they not know? Um, the, but I think the, I, I think a lot of it is just sort of the the basics of, of digital skills. And um, not to mention the fact that there also, the, there's a sort of a shortage that's been documented of, of building automation professionals. So in other words, like the folks that should be going to work at building automation companies like a you know a Siemens or a Schneider or Honeywell, who are technicians who can come out and troubleshoot when things go wrong. Like there's not enough of those people. They have a tough time finding them or training them. Um, so so that's even worse because if you got a person in a building who bought a piece of software, they don't really know, and then they call the company and say, "Can you come out and help me figure out what's going wrong with my building?" And then there's nobody to come out. You know, like that's those are real things. That, um, that sounds normal. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. It's very normal. Um, yeah. And and that's that's just in in large buildings where they can afford stationary engineers. Oh yeah, exactly. And I mean that's you know one of the things I'm talking about in the in the blog piece and that I'm super passionate about is like some of the biggest heroes I've ever seen in my work entirely like across the board and I've worked with a lot of really great people are energy managers, especially energy managers for portfolios like uh, public schools because mm-hmm. yep. they. You know, th- this, these are folks sometimes who have 40 or 50 or more buildings in their portfolio, and their job is to reduce the energy consumption of those buildings. And these are older buildings, and they've got, like, kids running around and all sorts of stuff. Um, and that is just such important work, and we could have a lot more people doing that work. Uh, and it just – it always feels to me like this amazing – perfect low-hanging fruit (laughs) like we just need to grab a little bit more but it does it's you know nothing's that easy we need to actually invest in training programs we need to develop partnerships with community colleges you know we need these kinds of pathways into jobs um it's it's just it's just hard to pull off and it doesn't always seem like the easiest way for us to spend our time and energy and money collectively as a as a movement, but I, I think it should be. Yeah. I, um, you know, what was it last year? I went to this HVAC save conference, um, kind of as a, as a market research thing. Uh, and, um, one of the, one of the most memorable experiences was the session led by boomers on how to recruit generation Z. Yes. Uh, Oh God. Yes. Yeah. uh, It was cringeworthy. Yeah, I think that's that's super important, and um, it also jives with with the experience that that we've had with uh, teaching contractors about um, using flowcharts, even. Um, wow. And, yeah. And and if if you want to, I feel like we we spend so much time teaching contractors about here's how to install this water heater or that heat pump, and very little about how to analyze this process or use that um, that tool to better your your processes. So that all jibes. Yeah, totally. I I think it's one of the things about it that's sort of just even more of a surprising miss um, is that that we have this gap in just workers in general going into HVAC careers, which probably has to do with the fact that um, like millennials, Gen Z people, don't really see it as a career that actually like has, you know, technology or career paths or interesting kind of analytical decision-making in it because the people that are in it right now don't look that way. But we know that that is not the case. Like these are actually pretty cool, interesting jobs where you could use a lot of analytical skills and a lot of technical skills. Um, You know, maybe you're somebody that really likes to work with computers, but it's you know you haven't found like the perfect computer job like you could totally do that stuff and work on optimizing buildings so it's this weird problem where the job should exist <laughs> but you know what i mean like there are people who should want them you mean if we build it they should come yeah <laughs> of course the the flip side and, and what i think your your point points to is that um, we can use data to upskill workers and to automate pieces of these jobs. Um, so, you know, what are the opportunities for people to get into jobs that um, 
employ automation to alleviate these training barriers so we can move forward in our climate goals and buildings? Yeah. So, so I think, well, I think this question probably calls for zooming out a little bit um, just to make sure I'm making the point fully. Um, Please zoom in and out. Yeah. So yeah, we're, we're going to talk about Gandhi. Um, So I believe that our climate goals are really important, but Gandhi uh, likes to point out that a technology is good to the point that it is a tool for humans to use to make their work more productive. And at the point that it replaces a human, its benefit to society is questionable. And and so for me, the society that I'm interested in is one where we don't have massive unemployment and wealth inequality because that's wrong. And also because we know that those things are a huge part of why we have climate change in the first place. Uh, so we have to fight these things at the same time. And so generally speaking, I fight for the type of technology that helps people do their jobs better, not the type of technology that replaces them. And I think it's important for people in the technology realm to recognize um, and to think about like, what is your eventual desired outcome here for society? And how is that? How are you participating in that? And so, you know, it's hard with buildings. It's a fine line with technology that we add into buildings. But I genuinely find, you know, you're going to get better results from a building that has skilled staff and good technology rather than getting rid of your staff and paying more for technology. Um, I I think it just has to be a marriage between the two. And, you know, that we don't always, I think, call that out and say enough that we don't want to, um, we don't want to lead to people losing their jobs. And I just, I don't, I don't like it when people pitch technologies to say that we don't need a human being to do this job anymore. Like we're facing just some critical societal issues in that realm. And, and the stewardship of our buildings is just a rich and wonderful profession that is, should have a ton of opportunities for people to stay in their jobs. So, so when we talk about upskilling workers and automating pieces of jobs, I think we need to make sure that we are really careful about saying that the intention is more jobs and not fewer jobs, if that makes sense. We'll, uh, we'll have to add the expanse to our discussion of uh, sci-fi later. Yes, exactly. Uh, I love the expanse. We can totally talk about that. <laughs> Hey there, Global Minima listeners. We thought you might be curious why we started this podcast. So here's the deal. Sustainablist, our company, is on a mission to help organizations in the clean energy space utilize their data to improve their processes. Whether it's sales optimization aimed at designing more productive portfolios of leads, DER multi-objective optimization that accounts for the complex constraints found in this space like battery array size, grid topology, EV distribution, and local policies or just figuring out where to start on your data journey. Sustainablist combines deep data science acumen with a time-tested knowledge of the clean energy space. To find out how we can help your clean tech organization, visit us at sustainablist.com GM. That's sustainablist.com GM for global minima. All right, back to the podcast. Kind of thinking about this um, in, in terms of what we've seen in the advancement of technology over the past 20 to 30 years, there's been a lot of movement in the green uh, building space. Um, if, if I recall right, you you worked on um, like dynamic lead plaques as that uh, if as that movement happened. 
Um, yeah. And I guess that um, something I'm really curious about is how have you seen the movement from static placards and rating systems to dynamic building monitoring systems and these dynamic rating systems? How, how, how has that been? What's your, been your observation of that? Yeah, it has evolved um, a ton and, and that's been super cool to watch. I think my um, view of it is that when we first started with, with lead and it's and similar types of rating systems. And it was sort of in the, the mid, like late nineties that those started coming out. It was more about defining what a green building project looked like. It was almost more like a certification, sort of like a certified organic label, because a lot of people at that point were saying like, well, a green building is a really efficient building. And some people were saying it's like, oh, it's a question of whether you use natural materials. And then other people were saying the only green buildings are near public transit. And so it was very, it was just that it was easy to say um, this building is green and have it not exhibit a lot of qualities that other people thought were important. And so the first exercises in green building sort of ratings and plaques and things were, they were very static. They were very focused on the construction industry, which is a very sort of once, you know, point in time experience. Um, And then I think what happened is we saw the potential for them to serve as these other mechanisms that needed to be more dynamic, because once you can say this building has a green building score of X, then you could start to say that it is you know, potentially, uh, you know, better or worse than other buildings. And you can use that score to inform, um, you know, uh, buying decisions. Uh, People use it to think about the valuation of real estate. And I got very excited about the idea that um, these ratings could become uh, a way of us getting back to the real function of buildings in my mind. So, you know, today buildings function in our economy in two very distinct ways that are typically not well overlapped. One is as a financial asset that people buy because it's secure. Um, And, you know, like it's a REIT and it's like you have a building, you own a building, it's a real estate investment trust, there's own buildings and that's like how they make money and that's a thing. but the question of whether they what what buildings are valued higher versus lower for the market if if one building is like toxic and it's killing people because it's got a whole bunch of chemicals inside it that were used to construct the building and another building next door is the exact same building but it's not toxic those buildings are valued the exact same way um, which just doesn't make any sense. Um, and it doesn't exist in a lot of parts of our society. Like, you, you know, the better stuff typically costs more, um, just in general, right? Like better electronics, they cost more (laughs) because they've been made with more care and more thoughtfulness. And they're, and you have like the, 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 the assurance that it is going to be better for your life. And we don't have that with buildings a lot of times because of the lack of data for consumers, essentially, of buildings. So um, so I just got excited about the idea that if you could kind of bubble up all of this data about buildings um, and the ratings became more dynamic over time, 
it would actually help people make better decisions uh, about whether, you know, which buildings they wanted to be in. Um, so, so at one level, it's that at another level, it's the sort of nerdy stuff that, that we like to think about, which is that if you have a dynamic score and one day, you know, the building engineer comes in and sees that the score is low, uh, then they can know that something's wrong and they can fix it more quickly. Um, which is also sort of a general issue is that we don't have, um, you know, monitor, like, in the way that a lot of us don't have the ability to monitor our health in some regular basis. Like we don't have that for buildings either. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I seem to recall an LBNL study um, that said that the average half-life for a controls upgrade is three years. Uh, and for any upgrade is seven years. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. And we would like to get to a place where, I mean, I don't even know. Where, how often we would like for controls to be sort of upgraded and thought through, but it's, you know, I mean, one way to think about it is how often your computer gets an upgrade to a new you know, operating system or a piece of software does. Yeah. Um, I think it, it yeah. really depends on the, the condition. If you're trying to save energy, then you need um, yeah, yeah. constant vigilance against the, 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 the controls. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think a part of that, is because buildings change more than we think they do. You know, like a lot of buildings, when I was working at Google, a lot of the buildings that we were operating would change their occupancy, you know, by like 500% month over month because people were just moving in and out of buildings, you know, departments move, whatever. So like if if you've got a building that had 1,000 people in it one month and then it's got 100 people in it the next month and your building's not changing how it operates, then it, it just it's just like it's pretty mind-boggling to me that we still have that that is the norm for how buildings operate these days um i was I, there's actually a great conversation going on um some folks at uc davis did some research that i really loved where they're showing that a lot of buildings during the pandemic have only commercial buildings have only lowered their energy consumption somewhere in the 20% range despite being as we know, vastly under occupied or completely unoccupied. I, uh, I can tell you that I, for one, am totally shocked by that. Yeah, yeah, it's completely insane. But it's basically because we don't really know how to shut things down, and more so, you'll find this interesting. We don't know how to turn things back on again. So, like a lot of the IT equipment in buildings. You could turn it off. Um, There could be like an automated system to turn the stuff off. But the concern is that when it turns back on, it doesn't automatically just boot up the way that like a light does. It it, it requires somebody to go in and log in and do stuff to set it up. I I feel like, you know, to to quote uh, David Culler, we don't know how to do nothing well. (laughs) Oh, that's such a good one. I like that quote. Yeah, totally. Burned into my brain. (laughs) Yeah, right. It's so true. Yeah. So like these great folks at UC Davis, Alan Meyer, um, with his research center there have been doing a lot of research on like the way they put it is like putting buildings to sleep. How do we put vacant buildings to sleep better? And yeah, doing nothing turns out to be uh, really challenging. So it just seems like a big opportunity. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm bad at doing nothing. Um, as we've already discussed. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, uh, so kind of in this vein, you're working on uh, ESG uh, data transparency for buildings. Um, is that uh, actually starting to impact markets yet? Um, and how do you factor? 
how does that factor into the data we gather from building systems? And would you like to define ESG for the audience? Yeah, yeah. So in environmental, social, and governance data, I guess, is the, it's, that's the official acronym. Um, so and, and that concept, I think, may be more familiar to people in the broader realm, which is that um, uh, these days when you're buying stocks and uh, mutual funds and things, you can do what's called sort of socially responsible investing, where you choose uh, mutual funds or stocks that have from from businesses that have good uh, environmental social governance scores, and those scores are often given by stock exchanges or other sort of third parties that look at the bill the the sort of companies and say that, you know they have an environmental report that they put out every year and they have made a statement against child labor and they have a, you know, a diverse board. And, and these kinds of things have shown repeatedly over the past time, you know, 20, 30 years, especially that, that, that this type of investing has been getting off the ground. Those stocks perform better. Um, these, these companies perform better when they're paying attention to the world around them um, and to the role that they play in society. So the hope is, uh, and this is happening more and more in the buildings world, that companies that are in the real estate sector um, report their ESG data. Um, they get rated as well that they that some of the companies in the real estate realm that are performing particularly well in the realm of environmental, social, and governance work uh, bubble to the top, that, that those, uh, companies that have taken sustainability and social issues seriously, then have their stocks become worth more, uh, than their competitors. And that actually starts to move the real estate industry into caring more about sustainability. Um, so it's, it's basically the, the sort of financial market market argument for doing what we do. Um, and I think it's still a great one. I'm happy to see that it's starting to pick up, especially when you see things like banks divesting from their fossil fuel uh, holdings or not doing fossil fuel investments anymore. There's a sort of a, the other side of that is that they are tending to do more ESG investing. It's it's still kind of early in the realm of make you know r real estate being a part of that, um, it, but but it is a part of that. Real estate companies are a part of those funds, um, the, and those that group of companies that gets high uh, ESG scores, and we need to keep that going. And and so you know in the fantasy version of all of this is like let's say you have this dynamic score for your building over time. Um, and it's telling you like, you know, you're doing really well, you're doing really well. And then I don't know, maybe something, maybe, maybe get a refrigerant leak, you know, <laughs> and then your score drops because you sometimes somehow find that out from some sense. That would obliterate your score. Yeah. Right. It totally would. <laughs> Refrigerants really matter. Uh, another, yeah, project drawdown that yeah. there goes your score. Yeah, it would be right. And so you would care, right? Like a ton, you would care so much that you don't accidentally have a refrigerant leak. Because if you have a refrigerant leak, then your score goes down, and then your stock price goes down, and then your boss fires you, you know, like, that's the dream, right? Um, that's, 
that's American exceptionalism right, right there based <laughs> on stock price. <laughs> right, exactly, because stock prices rule everything. But it's I think it's also just for me I get excited about it because one of the, my my big pet peeve like in the work in general is people who design buildings and then never stick around to see if they actually function the way they wanted them to. And these kinds of dynamic scores would just kind of show show them um, like, do you, you know, you'd start to have architects saying like, I can build you a building that will perform well over time rather than like, I can build you a building that is philosophically interesting to me, but actually, you know, all these beautiful windows that I've designed in that are going to flood the space with daylight are always going to be covered up with shades because I didn't pay attention to glare and that's not my problem. It's yours, you know, like that. Yeah. That would stop happening if the if the point was actually good performance, and we could build that more structurally into the way that the real estate industry works. So it's a, it's a challenge. It's a vision. It's not. Yeah, and I I yeah. almost feel like we need that score to be dynamic through the design process, um, so that when the value engineering phase happens, uh, they can they can all see the the score just go way down. Totally, totally. Yeah, it, I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, yeah, I hope that I hope that happens. Um, but yeah, and I, I, I will also give a shout out to um, one of the companies that I'm on the board of that I love very much is Measurable, which does this work. Um, and is I think they are some of the people that watch most carefully when that sort of as that tipping point is happening um, of ESG data becoming like important for the buildings world. Hey, this is Jason. If you're feeling inspired by what you're hearing today, I'd like to point out a way that you can make a difference. Years ago, I started a fellowship at UC Berkeley named after my late friend, Art Rosenfeld, who was commonly known as the grandfather of energy efficiency. The recipients of this fellowship are on the cutting edge of energy efficiency research. Our goal is to build an endowment that can support three full-time graduate students. Currently, the endowment provides one student with a stipend of about $7,500 a year to support their research in the field of energy efficiency. You can donate to this fellowship by Googling Rosenfeld Award at Berkeley or by going to tinyurl.com slash Rosenfeld Award. Where are the gaps in, in our understanding coming out of these, but I know we've talked about a few, but what are, what are the other gaps that really grind your gears in data coming out of buildings? I mean, I'll talk about one that has always been um, just, I don't know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's just like a thing I talk to censor people about anytime I think that they might be interested in hearing. It's, um, it's acoustics data. Uh, I would really love for someone to have created a piece of technology that actually allows us to understand where the quiet and the loud places are in our buildings because acoustics really matters to human health. It's a challenge because you really can't just have microphones. Um, and, you know, there's a big difference between a microphone and a decibel meter, but like, uh, I've just always wanted there to be the ability for people to find a quiet spot. Um, and, you know, acoustics data can be used in combination with other data to, to inform the occupancy rate of buildings, for example. I mean, it's one, it's one great way for us to learn that we could shut a, you know, we could turn a, a set a building to go to sleep if, if it's completely quiet. Um, 
and I think I think it matters to the human experience. So that's that's one that I just keep waiting for there to be like a really cool company that comes out that does like a you know a reasonably priced decibel meter sort of distributed sensor network approach for commercial offices. As a loud human, I I appreciate that because I constantly have to uh, put myself into spaces that dampen sound a lot. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, and I think it's it's also just partially like my philosophy about the way the building should operate is that you need to be able to support a diversity of different people. So like some people want it quiet and some people want to be chatty and that should be okay. But yeah, it can, it's challenging if you don't have a way to actually, you know, make those, If you, first of all, if you don't have a way to make the choices, but also if you don't have the power to choose Um, you know, and like a lot of people just don't have, don't have the power to choose and people who run real estate don't want to give them the power to choose. It's sort of, you know, (laughs) it makes things more complicated if people are moving around all the time. But I I just think that's got to be, at this point, we all know that commercial real estate office spaces are not going to exist in the way that they used to. Nobody wants them to. So stuff like that, more choice more ability to be yourself and be as loud as you want to be in your space. It means that, you know, people might actually go back and want to work in a building with other human bodies, you know. Noise right now is especially challenging to uh, working at home as well. Yeah, totally. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's hilarious. It's very humanizing to hear people's like dogs barking and children running around and stuff, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's noticeable. It's a thing. Um, Yeah. But I mean, that's, you know, that's sort of just a, Aside, entertaining thing. I think the the bigger area that just needs to be highlighted continuously until we figure it out is small to medium sized buildings. Like we don't have enough data coming out of those buildings, um, and we and we need it. Um, I, you know, I'm personally pretty hopeful uh, that more of that data will start coming out from the appliances themselves and things like that because I, I think it's hard to actually equip small to medium sized buildings with type of technology, you know, I mean, it just has, it has to be so easy to deploy. It has to be, um, you know, very sort of, there's a, there are a lot, so many aspects of like the usability of what we put into a, a space. And the sale is, yeah. is a much more, much more risk averse category. Right. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and just like, you know, you've got all these split incentive decision-making issues with who's buying the stuff. And so I think it's, I think it's hard and that's a huge gap and it just, we just need to keep saying that it's a huge gap so that people remember and try to solve that problem. So kind of just switching gears a little from your dream products to companies that are making your dream products and and startups, uh, you're on the board for the clean fight, uh, which is aiming to decarbonize New York city. How have the conversations you've been having in that group influenced how you think cities can leverage data to reduce carbon and anything else you want to say about the clean fight, feel free. The clean fight is awesome. I'm so excited about it. I think um, I'm excited for a few reasons. I'm excited partially because I'm just so excited for New York city in the work that they're trying to do. Um, This, the clean fight is, is a New York state level project that is uh, funded by New York state. um, And I'm excited about the fact that the state sees the importance of technology as a part of the solution um, for their climate goals. And 
and in particular, like there are accelerators and incubators all over the place. I typically find that there's not enough sophistication, especially when you come to sort of like the point of regulators or policy people about what actually needs to happen in our ecosystem. And, you know, it's my opinion. I'm sure a lot of people disagree with me that we don't have an absence of new technology companies coming out that want to solve buildings problems, but the clean fight specifically focuses on companies that have sort of a proven technology and they need to scale it and they want to scale it in New York. And New York City in particular has really specific building stock that have sort of unique issues. Um, You know, a lot of radiators, a lot of other sort of district system things. Uh, it's a, you know, a harsher climate than the one that we have here in California, where a lot of technologies kind of get going. Um, so it's a, it's a really good place to have a company grow from the point that they have a widget and it works to where they really figure out how to scale it into the market and to have a state, um, department that, cares about your scale and wants to help you is really helpful, whether Mm -hmm. you have, you know, any policy or regulatory concerns or not. It's just really helpful for the state. They have data, they have connections, they have like bureaucratic, you know, red tape that, (laughs) that like, it's just helpful to have them to, to help you navigate that stuff. And then on top of that, we have all of these incredible corporate sponsors that are that have a lot of real estate in New York or that you know have a uh, tech, that are bigger corporate companies that make you know building technologies and things like that so it's just a lot of people on your side um, if you're an entrepreneur um, and and I think it, it kind of brings the startups into the ecosystem of people who are participating in this in this um, I mean, New York is just doing some really incredible stuff um, that pe- people should know about. New York passed a local law 97. Um, I guess it's a little over a year now. I'm not sure. But it's um, recent enough that they haven't fully figured out how they're going to operationalize it. But it yeah. essentially requires all of the big commercial buildings in New York to reduce their energy consumption over time. Um, and uh, like... That to me is just like, so it's incredibly important that that, uh, that we start having that approach to the building sector that, that um, you know, it's it, that, that there is regulation uh, that says you have to reduce your energy consumption and that it's no longer all carrots, but like there are some sticks and that's what New York is doing. A lot of people have been talking about that, that mandate and the absolutely crazy challenges associated with uh, enforcing it. So yeah, yeah. I mean, speaking of data, I think, you know, I guess uh, this is what, what I did when I started at WeWork, we had this huge portfolio, global portfolio, we didn't have we knew we were, we were the first team to be tackling energy performance in the portfolio. And so uh, I had to decide at that moment, are we going to first try to understand all of the energy consumption in the entire portfolio? And then maybe next year we'll start to reduce it by a certain percentage, you know, and kind of, and then maybe the year after that, we start looking at clean energy. And what I decided to do was just to parallel track the whole thing 
And um, I knew enough about buildings and energy data to feel relatively comfortable saying that we were just going to use <laughs> essentially that I think people are really daunted by the New York law partially because it's really hard to know how, how much all of the, like, how do we compare all these different buildings to each other? And how do you know which ones are performing well and who, which ones are not performing well? We don't have the data. We don't have it all for sure. Um, but I just really think we need to know that like, yeah, we don't have it all, but it's, we're running out of time. So we're just going to have to do our best to fill the gaps of what we don't know keep moving and keep getting the buildings to reduce their energy consumption. You know, it's, it's, um, and, you know, fill it over time, get the technology in there. But I just hope we don't end up in a place where we're saying we can't start saving energy until we have all the data. You know what I mean? Right. There, there, there are some obvious things in almost every building that could be done once you understand the buildings. Um, and, uh, there's, I mean, this is this is part of um, part of the movement towards using uh, measured savings as well, as opposed to deemed savings, which can prevent you from uh, from implementing measures if you don't have certain baselines. Yeah, one hundred percent. It reminds me of um, this random story, but uh, I grew up in Decatur, Georgia. It's like a suburb outside of Atlanta. I know Decatur well. Yeah, Decatur, home of Outcast, uh, etc. Um, so one of the moments that it is probably less proud of than outcast was that, um, when I was growing up, there was a, a new, um, law that was passed that was essentially geared towards cities reducing, uh, or improving their waste, uh, diversion, uh, numbers. So like recycling more and, mm -hmm. um, I'm pretty, I, I, I'll try to find some backup on this story, but the story that I heard was that um, Decatur, when they heard that the bill was passed, they like they got on it and they started diverting, you know, installing more sort of recycling bins in public places and, you know, getting pro promoting recycling a whole bunch. They like got into it really quickly and they didn't realize that they were actually in their baseline year and they ended up recycling so much that they made their job harder for the future because Good the bill them. actually <laughs> you know and but they were just like whatever we're into it recycling let's do this and so um and like life went on you know like they still reduced more over time and it was okay and so to some degree i think about that story and i'm like yeah we may get the baselines wrong but like the point was what Decatur did, and they are pretty b good now with their recycling. Yeah, I mean, what what's going to happen? Are we going to save too much energy? Are yeah. we going to recycle too much? Yeah, wouldn't that suck? Wouldn't that just be horrible? Yeah. Oh, jeez, <laughs> what if we build a clean and sustainable future? What if it's all a conspiracy? It's a conspiracy. That's it's one of my favorite comics. I don't know if you've ever seen that. No. I, oh, I'll send it to you after this. I would like oh, to see it's it. Just like, it's just someone at a, at a slideshow being like, what if it's all a conspiracy to build a clean future? Um, <laughs> That's awesome. Exactly. Yeah. Oh man. So sad. On that note, kind of looking at the, the idea of, do you get moving with a specific plan or do you just get moving? Um, are the approaches that are happening at NYC going to be viable in other cities like Atlanta or Los Angeles, or do we need uh, to mix and match approaches to be bespoke in each urban environment? Uh, I think they are largely 
relatable. I think a lot of cities should be adopting some form of standards, performance standards for their buildings. Um, I think it's time. Uh, it's a really great way to reduce the carbon footprint of those of cities. I think it's going to be, yeah, really different when it comes to exactly what the buildings are. And, you know, I mean, Manhattan is just, uh, it's an outlier for sure. Um, I would guess that, you know, Houston and Dallas will learn a lot from Atlanta and, you know, like those kinds of things, right? Like that there are similarities in these cities and the way that they function. Uh, So, yeah, obviously uh, heterogeneity is there, but um, I think we could, I think it would be good for the movement, good for the industry if there was some agreed uh, momentum towards the concept that we are going to start regulating the performance of existing buildings, um, in particular on energy, but also Mm -hmm. it would be great if we did that for health. Um, and so like that, I think at the highest level, there's really no reason why any city shouldn't have uh, a, a way to regulate that. It's just a question of how, you know, what exactly you're regulating and, uh, how long it's going to take and some of those things. Yeah. We'll have to get Cliff on here to talk about that. Yes, Um, totally. Yeah. Cliff from, yeah. Institute for market transformation would, would get into the details in a very good nerdy way that I will refrain from. So he can do it. (laughs) Yeah. We'll have a whole podcast about that. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll invite him. Um, okay. So kind of moving into the current affairs, um, you know, with, with COVID-19, there's a significant amount of interest right now in using occupancy sensors and IAQ indicators to convey um, some level or feeling of safety in buildings. Um, and do you think these efforts will bear fruit, A, and do you think they'll be leveraged, they can be leveraged into efforts to make buildings more efficient? I hope so. Um I've heard some pretty wacky stories about commercial real estate owners in the past few months. Um, I think they can be called uh, snake oil stories where they're basically buying stuff that will give the impression that their spaces are safer. I will refrain from really calling out any names, but it has to do with like technologies that sort of um, claim to to zap away the viruses from a space. Uh, for oh, I heard about that at the the mega church where um, where where yeah. our president had uh, right. had the rally. Yeah, they, so they're right. advertising that, yeah. that HVAC system. Yeah. yeah, so like commercial real estate owners are apparently buying that stuff right now, and then they're advertising it to their tenants and being like, "We zapped it all away. Don't worry about it." Um, and that to me is kind of heartbreaking because I know how much money they probably just spent on that thing. And I know how much money it would have cost them to invest in proper building management. And I mm-hmm. guarantee that there are some folks that have invested in those zapping machines that don't have good management of their buildings. And I think good management of a building can really, can, can really help here. Um, you know, I'm not going to be the one saying we should all go back to the office, but I think if you, what you're trying to do is to keep a space um, clean and try to keep a space safe and to have some ability to track over time whether that is true, like how true is it that the space is clean and safe, um, then that looks like 
dynamic management with some digital infrastructure to do so. Um, you know, I think knowing how much ventilation you're getting into all of your spaces is important. And there are ways you can do that with CO2 sensors and things like that. Um, that will contribute in the end to better energy efficiency. I mean, ultimately, in the buildings world right now, there is certainly, well, there's always been a tension between health and energy when it comes to ventilation of buildings. And that is particularly high right now. And I think that's fine that we're sort of saying we need to overventilate our buildings. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's there's a, there's a deadly virus, like do the thing. Um, do so the thing. I'm sure there will be some energy that is expended on this that was sort of quote unquote wasteful because you were overventilating a space, right? But um, I think the longer game here for commercial real estate owners who are who are probably freaking out that they're gonna that their business is declining for for all of the pandemic reasons is to just invest in better platforms that can actually let you know what's going on in your building and what the spaces how how healthy the spaces are. Like that stuff mm -hmm. exists out there. And, you know, cleaning, pay your cleaning people well, you know, like, <laughs> like those yeah, give things. them hazard pay. Right. Yeah. Like, that's what I would do. Exactly. Give them hazard pay. Uh, <laughs> treat them as real employees. Maybe insource it if you outsourced it. I don't know. Whoa. Sorry. Not Whoa. to get too Whoa, This is America, here. Lindsay. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's you got to yeah. you got to pay that supply side. Jesus. <laughs> supply side. Jesus. Wow. Yeah, that's exactly it. America. Well, who knows? I have, I, you know, I, I love, I love some great, there are some great cleaning companies out there that are essentially the, the world of outsourcing, but I just, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, have good cleaners care about that. I, I could not, I could not agree, agree more. One of, one of our, um, one company that we're friendly with is, uh, making dashboards that track how often things were cleaned. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Actually, yeah, that reminds me um, of one company. I don't know how they're doing, but Lighthouse was, it was like, you know, it was sort of a, helps you to um, equip uh, custodial staff with like equipment that, that they can sort of use that says like, okay, I went into this room and I cleaned it. Yeah. I'll, I love all that stuff. Um, I think it's, I think it's, um, I don't know. It's, it's important right now. Look into it, you know? Yeah. As a last uh, question about buildings. Um, you know, buildings have a create significant embodied energy impact, uh, which sustainability professionals have been uh, calculating for a while, but many people are, are not aware of. And for our listeners um, who don't know, embodied energy is the energy it takes to make a thing. Um, so how can we use data-driven methodologies to reduce energy required to manufacture and construct buildings? Yeah, it is a really cool um sort of new phase of uh, of work in the building industry. It's not that new, as you said, um, but it is kind of newer for for buildings um, than it is for some industries. Uh, one, one tool worth uh, shouting out is the embodied carbon calculator. Um, it, it, that's uh, been a collaborative effort in the building industry that that is looking to essentially um, provide some of this data. Uh, on the embodied carbon of building products so that you can use it to make decisions in, in um, the designing and constructing of buildings. Um, 
the this data problem is similar to other data problems in the building industry in that it is part technology and part super gnarly real world problems. Um, I'm sure people have seen enough documentaries about global supply chains to understand why it's gnarly. Um, mm-hmm. and, and in the building industry in particular, this is harder. I think one of the things is actually nice is that uh, other industries are a little bit ahead of us. Um, and frankly, sometimes I think have an easier job at tracking their supply chain. So like clothing, there's really cool, interesting stuff happening with supply chain data transparency in the clothing industry, uh, with food as well. And so you have a lot of potentially nice tools or, or sort of innovations that get developed for other industries. I'm hopeful that that will be useful in getting the building industry to be able to move faster on it. But ultimately, we have our own problems, some of which relate to like who actually buys stuff. You know, a lot of times subcontractors buy stuff for buildings and they don't have the same reporting requirements that like an, you know, an owner would if an owner was buying something. Uh, so, so it's a lot of, um, there's, there's a lot of challenge to not just getting the data about what the embodied carbon of an object is and knowing that that data is like real and, um, and not lying. <laughs> um, and then also, um, getting to the right decision makers who care or who have a reason to care about buying the thing that has the lowest embodied carbon. So it's a, it's an ongoing thing. Um, I think a lot of architects are really leading the way on Mm -hmm. some of the embodied carbon decisions because it's, it's, you know, maybe a bigger question of like wood versus concrete. Um, Those are things that architects can decide. The question of like which piece of lumber gets bought is, is not an architect, right? So I, th- I think we have a long way to go, um, but it is an area where, you know, new technology is needed, um, no, new integration of technologies that exist is needed, um, and it hopefully we'll see um, just, a, a, you know, a, a flourishing of activity to enable that that transparency to happen. But, you know, as with all things, it also comes down to just human beings asking the question, where did this thing come from, and demanding an answer. So, Technology can do a lot of things, but we need to use our voices as well. Yeah, totally agree. Um, Speaking of using voices, uh, you also have a podcast, um, and I'd love for you to tell us about it. Um, Could you could you do that? And also tell us why you started it and what it's all about. Yeah, so um, I guess it's been about four months. Uh, We started a podcast. It's called Women in to sustainability, design the future, um, long name for lots of reasons, but names are my least favorite part of a project. So we just like went with it. I'm terrible at them. (laughs) So, um, and it's basically just highlighting, uh, women in the work that they're doing, leading the, the world of sustainable buildings in lots of different ways. Um, I, I have found it enormously uplifting in every way. Um, I started, we started it because, so like for me, I was starting to think about just ways to elevate conversations, to get people talking about things. And I am very fortunate that I have a couple of friends who are, who are my best friends and who I work with uh, indirectly in this movement. And we talk about like, is the movement going in the right direction, you know, sitting in each other's backyards and stuff. And so it, um, I just wanted 
to broaden that and to get more people thinking, especially like it's the year 2020. And for a lot of people in the sustainable buildings movement, this was supposed to be like a milestone year of like, you know, crossing some finish lines. And we haven't really crossed a lot of finish lines. And I wanted to have a conversation with people and reflect on that. And we thought it would be a good opportunity to do that um, while making sure that uh, women were getting the recognition that they deserve in the mm-hmm. leadership that they've expressed um, in leading this movement. And so, yeah, it's super fun. We, we talk to a different woman every week. My co-host, Kira Gould, she actually wrote a book a few years ago called Women in Green that like was sort of an earlier iteration of, uh, of, of, you know, this type of idea. And, uh, yeah, we just like tell stories and hear how everybody's doing and like talk about, you know, people's badass mothers and how they influence them and all these things. And, um, we talk a lot about equity and justice and yeah, it's fun. I, I, yeah. Podcasts, right. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. I, (laughs) I definitely have a few nominations uh, for, uh, for mostly Pacific Northwest women. Um, uh, definitely Sharon Metzger um, from PNNL. And um, I always have good conversations with Susie Amos from NIA. So, um, nice. All right. Yeah. Just, to, just to nominate people live yeah. on the air. So live that, on the know, air. When, when they listen to this, they're like, what? I'm on they're the like, spot. yeah. All right. I um, like it. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, did you listen to our, our talk with Jane Peters? Not yet. I would like to. I just saw it. I was. I um. I I wanted to listen to Matt Golden's because I was like, yeah. I, like he's always. So I I uh, I got through so that. Energetic. One. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. But I saw that I was there, and I will. I will listen to it. Um. Yeah. Totally. So yeah, uh, I I listened to your podcast. What was it uh, while well, I was doing my homework for this because I I've, I've started being better about doing homework when preparing for podcasts. Yeah. Um, and you, you mentioned that you were reading a book uh, by Kim Stanley Robinson. And I, um, I have a lot of feelings about sci-fi and Kim Stanley Robinson was, um, was a formative author um, for me. And m- my general feeling about sci-fi is it's one of the best tools that we can use to analyze policy decisions um, by kind of, extrapolating the future and uh to me kim stanley robinson you know always explores these themes of long lives combined with um like large population bases expanding outward into space um and at least that's that's some of his classic work i haven't read uh 2140 yet uh, new york 2140 so i i, I just wanted to kind of ask you how it was um without any spoilers um because i just downloaded the audiobook um yeah uh, and um get your feelings about not just kim stanley robinson but other sci-fi that has been influential to you um, oh my gosh this is so exciting um (laughs) i mean okay so i'll say more generally um i have been reading a lot more um sci-fi recently for the reasons that you articulated, I think it is a really great way to reflect on the extent to which we can change the world, how that actually functions, what happens when the world changes and people mm-hmm. react to it in different ways. Um, I actually, um, I, I started off uh, the pandemic reading uh, a, a 
a trilogy by N.K. Jemisin called the Broken Earth Trilogy. Oh, so good. Which just was like the, I mean. Have you read her other work? Uh, no, this was my first one. And we're going to read, we're actually, my partner and I are going to read her her New York book, um, The City We Became. We have, I'm looking at it right now. Um, and I'm, I'm so excited. I just love her writing and I love everything that it did to kind of help me think outside the box on like, what are we trying to save? Why are we trying to save it? When does it get to the point where we just start to say like, you know what, some of this stuff doesn't deserve to be saved. I'm so mad, like all of that stuff. And you kind of work through it. She's so good. Um, with all of that. NK Jemison really, um, expresses the themes of kind of technology as magic. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Um, And like, there's some beautiful relationships there between like technology, magic, nature, like how these things can be thought of more. um, Yeah. Like there's a, there's a more intertwined way that they're considered rather than being like technology mm -hmm. versus nature, which I think is really fascinating and, and just brilliant. Um, I also actually started off, uh, I guess, yeah, maybe midway through pandemic times, reading um, the the second of Octavia Butler's uh, books, um, Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents, um, which I think are also really important books um, about resilience. And um, I wouldn't really call them sci-fi, I guess. Um, They're really less science and more sort of fantasy fiction, but like very future oriented yeah. and um, also really profound and beautiful. Um, so, you know, I was coming off of reading these two, um, you know, really profound, beautiful writers who are both uh, black women and um, who talk a lot about the human condition. They talk a lot about inequality um, and they, and they talk a lot about like what happens when those structures are disrupted um, and, and, and like, and I just rec- I recommend them for sure for people. I think they, both of those writers are incredible. They've had a lot of influence on me. Um, I also watched the expanse, uh, towards the beginning of this. Which was also that, so that's cool. a show a lot about equity and, and the kind of decisions and, and, and all the books, um, are, yeah. are really dive into what happens when you don't have enough jobs for everybody. And when, um, you have the politics of concentrating those um, geopolitical powers to the few yeah, instead right, of the many. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And yeah. it's just, yeah. I mean, I, I, it's, um, it's so complex. Like I love it. The, the show, the, you know, there's a character in there who's like this guy who's like a botanist and um, he and his job. Oh, Prax? I, I, uh, I guess so. I don't remember his name. Yeah. It's Prax. Yeah. Prax. Yeah. And like, I've I found like his story just so so beautiful and touching because he's basically a botanist who then sort of and who, whose life you know like he spends his life basically trying to to grow and to build and to like make things sustainable, and then he essentially is enlisted to like fight the man on the things, and he does it you know because it's like um, as John because Lewis that's who he is. Yeah, because yeah. he's getting in good trouble, as our uh, as my former congressman used to like to say, it's it's important. Like this is you know, and, and it's so yeah. good just to like watch that transition happen for him. And I, I don't know. I think it is also a lot about just the fact that like 
nobody wants to be fighting these fights, you know, like, but that, but like, we have to fight them. <laughs> and so, yeah. like, <laughs> have you read Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy? No, no, I hadn't read anything okay. else by Kim Stanley Robinson, which is probably. Ah, okay. Yeah. So that, that was the reason I got so excited is because, um, I think that, um, I think I read the Mars trilogy when I was 13 and I got really into sustainability um, wow, shortly cool. before that. And the Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy is just, uh, I mean, part of his entire theme is like eco-conscious sci-fi. Um, and I think uh, between him and David Brin, I really got into that, um, that, that thing, but it's, it's a, it's the story of terraforming Mars um, and extending human life and just kind of going into the implications of what happens when there's a vast difference in how long people can live and when we expand our resources as a society but also have to struggle with um, not everyone having access to those resources and having to deal with the concentration of resources spread among many people on earth. Yeah. And I, I think about it often and I think it's very applicable to our current situation. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, 2140, uh, uh, I won't, I won't spoil it in any way by saying sort of what, uh, like a couple of things that I saw that I think were interesting about it, but that ultimately made me kind of have a hard time with the book. I think one of the things you could tell he was doing very clearly and very well was to sort of make this, intervention into New York in which sea levels have risen um, mm -hmm. to the point that uh, some of the floors of the buildings in New York are submerged. Um, but um, he, he then sort of posits that people still live there. Uh, they figure out how to kind of, um, you know, batten down the hatches and like stay in these buildings on the upper floors and things change. And there's all this sort of ingenuity that comes out of that and so you could see you can see him like in sounding like what he does well which you know to to really um sort of posit like what if this thing happened what would that actually do for society i i think one of the reasons i had a hard time with it was because there were he, he was not suggesting any of the other aspects of how climate change would affect us in particular like freak weather events or um, significant heating or cooling of the planet. So like literally sea mm -hmm. level rise is sort of the only thing that has changed in New York. Um, and, and so there's, a, so it is this kind of like, you can see, I think it is very informative and thoughtful about like sort of how, how life would work in that particular scenario. And it's good to like, kind of get your head through those types of things. Um, but, but the other thing I think that he doesn't do as well in that is to really talk about like the millions of people that would have died along the way and what that would have done to like, you know, who is still in New York at that time. And are they, um, there's, there is certainly a discussion of like income inequality and a lot of political action and like super cool stuff that, 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 that happens that relates to people disrupting the economic systems and, you know, socialism versus capitalism stuff. It's all really cool that way. Um, yeah. but, uh, but I, I just want, you know, coming off of like Octavia Butler and Kate Jemison, it's like, it just wasn't quite enough about what really happened to like the 
people and like the overall, like just that huge tragedy and that sense that like the world has fundamentally gone through such profound loss. Um, it was, it wasn't like enough of that for me. And then the other nerdy thing I will say is that one of the protagonists of the book is a building engineer. He's a building manager. Nice. And I like, and I know a lot of building managers and I was like, Ken Stanley Robinson, do you know many building managers? Cause like, (laughs) it's not really like a lot of the building managers I know (laughs) in some way, like the jobs that he does and like the sort of things that he cares about and like the actual nerdy building management references that he makes. I'm like, that's not how it works, dude. You know, like, (laughs) Oh no. You know, that's not fair really to criticize him on some of these things, but um, yeah, I, I was a little bit like we should have introduced Kim Stanley Robinson to some more stationary engineers in Manhattan, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, now I'm going to have to read the book and then uh, we'll get Kim Stanley Robinson on the show. Oh um, yeah, do. Totally. Yeah. That's it for this episode of Global Minima. And I need to correct myself. This was episode seven, not eight. So we'll have to postpone the celebrations a little bit longer. But that is six other episodes at the intersection of bits, watts, and dollars. So you should give them a listen. We'll be back next month. So tell your friends about us and we'll see you then. 